The practice of pharmacy has changed quite a bit over the last several years, with pharmacy schools and pharmacists making an effort to become more patient-centered. Still, sometimes it takes a look back through the eyes of a healthcare professional who saw those changes take place to truly appreciate just how far the practice of pharmacy has come and just how far its place in healthcare has really evolved over the last few decades. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Focus on Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk, PharmD. Our guest is Dr. Robert Rapp, PharmD, Professor of Pharmacy at the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy and Manager of Clinical Services and the Department of Pharmacy Services at the UK Chandler Medical Center in Lexington, Kentucky. Dr. Rapp, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you today. Our introduction highlights your clinical and academic titles, but an abbreviated intro doesn't do justice to your service to the practice of pharmacy. Take us through, if you will, how you've seen the practice of pharmacy change, starting with your graduation from pharmacy school. Sure, I'd be very glad to. It actually would have to start a year before I graduated when I noticed a one ad, I guess, on the bulletin board of the College of Pharmacy. Well, first of all, we were going to open a new hospital in 1962. And this was 1961, I guess, really about a year and a half before I graduated in 1963 with my bachelor's degree in pharmacy. And Dr. Paul Parker uh, was a director of pharmacy at the University of Kentucky, and he's sort of a father figure in hospital and clinical pharmacy. And he posted a bulletin board ad at the college that he wanted to hire six or seven pharmacy students to help get ready for the hospital opening in April of 1962, I guess it was. So I was one of five, at that time, I guess, junior pharmacy students that interviewed with Paul, and fortunately, I ended up getting hired as one of five students to begin the process of preparing what then was called Pharmacy and Central Supply. And that's very important because not only did we do everything drug-wise, but we also did all the sterilization of all the operating room equipment, of all the sterile products used throughout the hospital. I know this sounds strange now, but we even resharpened and reused our metal needles after they were cleaned thoroughly. It was really an experience for me to go over there with the early pharmacist that he had hired in both the Department of Pharmacy as well as on the Central Supply side. And it was just simply a wonderful education. I got assigned to Tom Samuels primarily uh, in the packaging and Central Supply area. He taught me so much about sterilization, about sterility testing, how you pack things. He was a true expert in both steam sterilization and gas sterilization, and hot air, heat sterilization as well. And, of course, you know, you talk about this in this day and age. We prepared many of our irrigating solutions for the operating room. We prepared many sterile intravenous products. I mean, it was literally a manufacturing process. And then shortly after that, of course, was the beginning of the area of total parenteral nutrition, and we actually made our own TPN solutions out of protein hydrolysates, dextrose, and electrolytes. So a lot of things uh, could be learned from that in microbiology, and that prepared me for what was going to be a later career in the infectious disease area. Well, the hospital opened, and Dr. Parker uh, not only was director of the Department of Pharmacy and Central Supply, 
but he also became the chairman of the Department of Clinical Pharmacy in the College of Pharmacy. He worked with the dean of the College of Pharmacy, and they had this vision. They had this vision of clinical pharmacy where pharmacists would practice with physicians on the floor and that pharmacists would be the true drug experts and they would relate directly to patients. And he promulgated those kinds of philosophies not only to his staff pharmacists but to the faculty at the College of Pharmacy and obviously to, to all the people that worked for him. Bottom line is I graduated from the College of Pharmacy in 1963 and took a job as a clinical staff pharmacist for the wonderful salary of $7,000 a year and began working in the unit dose area because we were kind of preparing all of our doses to begin a unit dose project. Uh, worked a lot with Tom Samuels. Not only did we supply all the drugs and all the sterile supplies, but way back in the early 1960s, we also set up all the ventilators. We helped the nurses in the intensive care units set up the ventilators. So I learned a lot about ventilator mechanics and all that sort of stuff. And we also were responsible for the cast carts for orthopedics. And so we frequently would be in the emergency room helping orthopedics put on a cast on a broken leg or a broken arm, etc. Well, along about the mid-1960s, we had accomplished unit dose. And the words PharmD began to kind of permeate the area. The University of Michigan already had a PharmD program, and the college, working with Dr. Parker and other faculty members, ended up picking five clinical staff pharmacists. Now, we had a drug information center director at that time by the name of Dr. Charles Walton. Dr. Walton is well-known in clinical pharmacy circles, received many awards during his career. He was a Ph.D. in pharmacology, by the way, in addition to being a pharmacist. And Dr. Walton served as the major professor for the five clinical staff pharmacists that were picked to go through what was called the PharmD program and become the first, quote, clinical professors in the Department of Pharmacy practice at the College of Pharmacy. Dr. Walton arranged for us to take almost the entire second-year medical school curriculum with emphasis on pharmacology and pathology and pathophysiology. Bottom line is we all graduated in 1970 with our PharmD degree and, again, under the direction of Dr. Charles Walton, and we all then received our clinical assignments, and I was assigned to the Department of Surgery as the clinical pharmacist in the Department of Surgery. So that kind of is the early years, Charles. You know, I had a number of research interests during those years. We did an enormous amount of work on total parental nutrition, and we studied the early fat emulsions, the intralipids, and put those together with the amino acids and the dextrose and the electrolyte solutions. We also pioneered early enteral nutrition during those days. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk. Our guest is Dr. Robert Rapp, PharmD, Professor of Pharmacy at the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy and Manager of Clinical Services in the Department of Pharmacy Services at the UK Chandler Medical Center in Lexington, Kentucky. We're discussing the changes Dr. Rapp has seen come to pass since he joined the profession in 1963. So, Dr. Rapp, continuing from our discussion just before... Where did pharmacy practice go at the University of Kentucky next? 
You've got to remember that from a unit dose standpoint, the University of Kentucky had the first drug information center and had the first hospital-wide unit dose system uh, in the world, I guess. Now, the University of Arkansas had some early experience with uh, unit dose, but they never achieved a hospital-wide system, which we did in the about 1967, 1968, or something like that. It was fascinating, and, you know, what you have to remember is that industry didn't provide any unit dose injectables or tablets or elixirs or solutions, so we had to package it all. Our injectables were primarily backfilled Tubex. Tom Samuels developed a strip packager for tablets and capsules that also labeled the uh, individual strip package drugs. So lots of fascinating things were going on. Then in the very late 60s and the early 70s, we began our residency program, which in the early years was actually a three-year program leading not only to a residency certificate from the American Society of Health Systems Pharmacy, but also a PharmD degree. So our early classes were up to 14 to 15 residents working on both their PharmD degree and their residency certificates. And, of course, that program continues today. Uh, we eventually had to separate the residency from the PharmD program because ASHP eventually said, well, you can't combine a residency clinical experience with a degree program. And, of course, the program we have today is you only take PharmDs in the program, and they go into a first-year pharmacy practice residency, and then many of them stay in our program for two years to pursue a second year of specialty residency. And, of course, during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we then solidified clinical practice, became much more sophisticated, and began to specialize. We were kind of generalists back in the 70s and 80s, but we began to realize probably in the late 80s and 90s the benefit of specialization. We, of course, now have specialists in virtually every area of clinical practice, not only me and infectious disease, but we have pharmacists in cardiology, pediatrics, my goodness, oncology, internal medicine, critical care. It just goes on and on and on. And I want to tell you what, Charles, these specialists are good. Boy, are they good. And once many of our physicians begin practicing with them, they find out that their patient care just simply can't get along without them. So that kind of gives you a little bit of an overview. It was, I guess, in the late 1990s on general surgery that antibiotic therapy, I thought, was so bad that really got me interested in the area of infectious disease and microbiology. And I, of course, have been in that area for the last 15 to 16 years, of course, and then we began our antimicrobial stewardship program at Kentucky in 1998. And, of course, I'm very gratified that last year the Infectious Disease Society of America and the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America actually published the guidelines for antimicrobial stewardship. And in those guidelines, the two core members of the team are uh, an infectious disease physician, but the second core member of the team is an infectious disease-trained pharmacist. I look at that as perhaps the culmination of the things we've been trying to accomplish. What we've got to figure out now is what is an ID-trained pharmacist. So anyway, that kind of gives you a little history of my 46 years in pharmacy and clinical pharmacy and pharmacy education. Moving forward, how do you think the dynamic between pharmacists and other healthcare professionals is changing? Oh, it's changed tremendously. 
you know, when I first came into pharmacy, we were predominantly concerned with the quality of the product that we dispensed and prepared. You know, we're still concerned about that. But if you look at pharmacists in other countries, Japan, China, etc., they're still into that. We in the United States kind of have swung away and have turned that over to industry and have become much more clinically oriented. So that has been maybe one of the most major changes I have ever seen in pharmacy practice over the last 20 or 30 years, whereas now we're concerned with the drugs at the level of the patient, drug interactions, duplicate pharmacotherapy, adverse effects, and all the things that we try to prevent and try to make sure that the patient's on the most appropriate drugs we possibly can. So, yeah, it's been a major shift. Uh, Now, unfortunately, maybe we need to take two or three steps back and worry a little bit about the quality of drugs again because, as you well know, many of our generic drugs, particularly our perennial drugs, are coming from foreign sources, uh, most notably places like China, India, etc. And we, of course, have had a number of major issues associated with the quality of those drugs over the past several years. So who should do that? Should that be the generic manufacturer? Well, we already know the FDA has had major issues with some of these generic manufacturers falsifying uh, records, falsifying quality data, etc. Should it be the wholesaler? I'm not sure the wholesaler is capable of that. What about the buying group? Should it be the buying groups? Or should it be the individual pharmacist working with all those people to ensure that the products we get, whether they're generic or name-brand products, indeed meet quality? Or should it be the FDA? You know, the FDA you know, is trying to beef up their foreign inspection of plants, but I believe the figures say that right at the present time, the FDA only has inspected maybe 10% of overseas manufacturing facilities at this point in time. So obviously that area is ripe for somebody to work out what we should be doing about the quality of the drugs that we're receiving in our hospitals and our pharmacies in this day and age. We've been talking with Dr. Robert Rapp about changes to the profession of pharmacy starting in the early 1960s. Dr. Rapp, thank you so much for joining us. It has been my pleasure, Charles. It's always fun to talk about not only the past but the future, and I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and you've been listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library, and thank you for listening.